Would you bow with me for a word of prayer tonight as we begin our time? Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this opportunity to be here tonight together, gathered around the Word, gathered to hear from you what you have for us. And so we are grateful that we can once again uh, open your Word together and uh, have the Spirit of God attend to our time so that we might understand what it is you have for us Lord, honor your name through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles with me and turn in them to our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, I want to begin our time tonight by reading for us from verses 16 through verse 27, and I want to try to just tie up some loose ends from the past several weeks, and then add some new tonight. And I'll just say at the head of time, I'm going I'm to give us four points tonight as we walk through this text, and I'll just list them for you right now, and then we'll walk through them together. We're going to deal with the humiliation of Jesus Christ. We're going to deal with the criminalization of Jesus Christ. We're going to deal with the orchestration of God the Father, and then the compassion of Jesus Christ. So the humiliation, the criminalization, the orchestration, and then the compassion of Jesus Christ, just as we think through this text together. So if you would have your Bibles open, follow along as I read from verses 16 through verse 27. So then... So he then delivered him to them to be crucified, of course, talking about Pilate. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote in an inscription also and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also a tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were, standing by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. We already know from our 
study and reading of the Bible that all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course here in John, they include some details concerning the death of Jesus Christ. But as we have heard many, many times already in our own study, the Apostle John specifically tells us his reason for including what he has in his gospel. It's stated for us just probably a page over in your own Bible in verse 31. He says, These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I don't think that we can lose sight of the reality that John said that in spite of the fact that entire libraries of books could be filled up with the accounting of the many other signs that Jesus performed to show that He's the Christ, to show that He's the Son of God. And John even acknowledges that. If you look back in verse 30 of chapter 20, John says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. So we have been recognizing all along as we have been studying through the Gospel of John so that as John writes, we know that he desires every person to believe upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That He is the King. That Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. By believing that all who believe would have life in His name. That's John's purpose. We know that. That's God's means for accomplishing in time what God has determined from eternity past. The saving of His own through the sufficient sacrifice of His Son. So when you read through the Gospel of John, every picture of Christ, every picture painted by the pen of John is designed to reveal to us just that reality, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And so when we come to chapter 19 and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that is what is on display. That is why John included it. The glory of God in the glory of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ in the flesh, so that through the gift of faith, His chosen would, in fact, be saved. That is what John desires to make perfectly clear. What we are seeing is Jesus. What we are seeing is the Son of God. What we are seeing is the One who is the Messiah, the King of glory. That's what we see here in John chapter 19, and therefore when we read verses like the I just read, there ought to really well up in our soul a great sense of debt to Christ. Great sense within each one of us who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, a sense of of the reality of what it took for Christ to pay for our sin. In fact, so great was the love of Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father that He 
would come to sinners like us and would, and in fact could, voluntarily endure all of the horrific sufferings for the salvation of us. I mean, that thought alone ought to crush us. And when we truly think about it, we cannot help but be reminded of how great the sinfulness of sin. When we think about the crucifixion, that ought to be forefront on our minds. How great was the sinfulness of sin. Because it took the substitutionary death of the Lord of glory in order to provide for our redemption. Let me say that again. It took the substitutionary death of God incarnate to provide for our redemption. That means that sin is incurably sinful. Incurably sinful. Sin is so heinous that it plunged the entire human race into the grave of spiritual death. That means that you and I before salvation were in a condition whereby it's impossible not potentially possible, but impossible for us to do anything to save ourselves. The Apostle Paul said it this way in that familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 2, for you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead. Dead doesn't mean partially alive. Dead does not mean partially dead. Dead means that we, as we understand it intellectually and experientially in our world, it means completely and absolutely without life. Sin spiritually killed us all. That's how incurably sinful sin is. Deadly And so when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when we look at the crucifixion, knowing that the wages of sin is death, as Paul says in Romans, knowing that Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one, knowing that unless God do something, we will continue to remain in our sinful deadness forever, So that when we look at the cross and the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we are amazed that through it all we see the submission of Christ as our substitute. That just amazes me that here it had to take God. It had to take God incarnate to do this because no man would ever endure this with submission. Notice, first of all, just by way of reminder, how Jesus had to bear his own cross to the place of his dying. This is his humiliation. Remember verses 16 and 17, so he then delivers Jesus up to be crucified after the mock trial of both the Jewish trial prior to the Roman trial that we spent some time looking at. And he delivers him up to be crucified, and they take Jesus, therefore, and he goes out bearing his own cross. 
bearing his own cross. This was just part of the humiliation to which Jesus submitted himself to in order that we might be saved. Of course, this was just one part of the punishment that would be imposed upon a criminal under the Roman system of judgment. They would be forced, as it says here, to carry their own instrument of death forced to carry the very thing on which they would die to the place for which was predetermined that they would die, and therefore this was part of our death that was put upon Christ. This is our death. This is our instrument of death. Put upon Jesus Christ. And of course we read stories and we read here in Scripture, the cross being made of a a piece of wood, sometimes a tree, cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. This is the instrument on which Christ would die. But we cannot think of it simply as a piece of wood because the implications of the cross go farther than that. The implications of the cross go even out to our day. Because in the greater sense, Jesus Christ was accounted as a sinner, and he was counted as a curse for our sake. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, he was the fulfillment of the great type of the sin offering of the Mosaic law. He was the fulfillment of the great type of sin offering that the Mosaic law required. And I want to look at this for a moment tonight. So turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. This is after, of course, Israel has been called out of Egypt by God. God has graciously removed them from the hand of the oppression under the Egyptians after they had spent hundreds of years there. They had multiplied in many, many ways, and God miraculously delivers them, takes them out. Moses is leading them. And they had been worshiping God. They had been going to God with the leadership and under the leadership of the Aaronic priesthood. And yet, just prior to this moment, there had been a time when the two sons of Aaron had offered a strange fire to God, and God killed them. In other words, they came to God under their own pretenses, under their own ways, thinking that they could go to God in any kind of way. And God had taken their life. And in chapter 16... We get a recounting of the law of the atonement, the law of atonement, the law by which sin is covered. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Now these are Moses' nephews that God had killed right there. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. 
Now, right there is a categorical change that what had taken place before. There was this freedom of entry in the past, and God is saying, that's not happening anymore. That has been done. There has been a, an obliteration, an abomination of that, and that's not going to happen. Tell Aaron he can't do that, because he's going to die if he does. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bowl for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen tunic, the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Notice the exactness by which God is giving these instructions, by the way. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Aaron had to purify himself before he could even start with the process of doing the goat offering. And then he takes the goats and he presents them at the tent of meeting before God. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. And interesting, takes the two goats, one goes to the Lord, one goes as a scapegoat, and the one that goes to the Lord becomes the offering for the people, the offering for the Atonement, God's portion, becomes the atoning offering, the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the blood of the sin offering, of the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he'll take the fire pan full of fire coals from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and burn it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense in the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, lest he die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on each side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he'll slaughter the goat of the sin offering for which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bowl, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in the front of the mercy seat, and he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of the transgressions and regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. In other words, everything's polluted. Everything needs to have blood on it. Because the impurities are everywhere. God can't be with sin. And when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. That he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he'll go out to the altar. That is outside in the other area of the tent of meeting. That is before the Lord and make atonement for it. 
It shall take some of the blood of the bull and blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altars and on all sides. With his finger, he'll sprinkle some of the blood on, the, on it seven times and cleanse it from its impurities from the, of the sons of Israel to consecrate it. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body with water in the holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar and the, and the one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then afterward he shall come to the camp, come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides and their flesh and their refuse in fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards shall come into the camp. You see, beloved, little did the spiritually blind Jews back in John chapter 19, after reading Leviticus, keep it in your mind, keep that exactness in your mind, keep the procedure in your mind, keep the scapegoat in your mind, keep the blood of the bull and the goat and the entrails and the hide, keep all of that in your mind and where it had to go. Little did the spiritually blind Jews of the crowd understand that day when they continued to push Pilate that they should crucify Jesus outside the city crucify him and the place of crucifixion being outside the city. Little did they understand that they were unconsciously offering the greatest sin offering that was ever to be offered. Little did they understand that it was the Lamb of God making atonement for His people. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it, Hebrews chapter 13. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. In other words, those who were thinking that there was some kind of ritual, ritualistic cleansing in those kinds of things. He said, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, Aaron, Leviticus chapter 16, 
those animals, that is burned outside the camp. Therefore also, Jesus, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. You say, what is He saying? Well, He's giving us a practical lesson. A practical lesson that we are learning through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The one who bore His own cross. Like our Master, like Jesus Christ, we must be content with Christ. You must be content with Christ, like the writer of Hebrews says, go out to Jesus outside the camp. We have to bear His reproach. One thing to say you love God is yet a whole other thing to say you love Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14 says that we must bear our own cross or we cannot be His disciples. I think it's Luke 14, verse 27, I believe. Listen, we must come out from the world. We must live a life of detachment. That's the Christian life, a life of detachment. Be willing, if God would have it so, to stand alone. Stand alone continually, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously, as Jesus did. Bearing His cross. And so Christ was actually carrying his own instrument of death, his own instrument of physical death. And so we also carry the instrument of dying to self. But it says, our cross in our daily lives, to know, as Paul said, the fellowship of his sufferings, to have our affections and our desires crucified, You see, this was Christ's humiliation. This was Christ's humiliation. He bore His own cross. There's a second point that I want to bring out tonight. I gave it to you already, and that is the criminalization of Christ. The criminalization of Christ. We looked at it really in some detail last time, but I want to just mention it again tonight because this passage says that Jesus was crucified as a king. That was his charge, right? Verses 18 through verse 22, they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it's written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. The title was placed over the head of the criminal was unmistakable. It was plain to everybody. Whatever language, in fact, of that day that you were accustomed to speak, whether it was Hebrew, Latin, or Greek, you couldn't fail to know and understand that the one who hung on the cross in the middle of those three who were dying that day had a royal title. The interesting thing about it was all of this was as it was because of the overruling hand of God to ensure that it was so. In other words, it was according to the sovereign hand of God the Father that God the Son be so entitled the way it was 
and the way the details of this event were taking place. Why did Pilate write what he wrote? Well, from a human perspective, he did it to irritate the Jews. They didn't want to have that on there. Don't write that. The king of the Jews, don't write that. That obviously was an irritation to the Jews. That's what he wrote. Why? Because that is what Jesus Christ was, and that is what Jesus Christ is. He's a king. He's a king. Even before the birth of Jesus Christ. You remember, all the way back in the beginning stages of Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel declares to Mary, and the angel says to her, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This was before he was ever born. So it was declared that he would be a king. And then shortly after his birth, we hear of other wise men that come from the east saying, Matthew 2, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is this one who is born? Obviously, word had gotten out. The birth has happened. Where is this one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Then, of course, as we saw in John chapter 12, just a week prior to his crucifixion, crowds are gathered. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and they are proclaiming to him in John chapter 12 and verse 13 and following. As they come to the feast, when they hear Jesus coming to Jerusalem, they take branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That time, the belief of all the godly Jews was that when the Messiah comes, that he would come as the son of David, how the son of David would come, that he would come as a king. That's what they believed. And then, as Jesus is carrying out his own ministry, he continually proclaimed the kingdom of God. We see that over and over and over again, particularly in the Gospels of Ma- Gospel of Matthew. And so we have to conclude that a king he was. In fact, he declared that to Pilate just a little bit earlier. Chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. I have a true kingdom. I am a true king. I am the Lord of all those who are in that kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were, then my servants would be fighting. But my kingdom's not of this realm. Why? Because that's what he was born into. That's what he was. That's what it was for which he lived. 
And we might even add that is the capacity in which he will return. Right? He will come again as what? King of kings and Lord of lords. And so as we emphasized last time here in John chapter 19, we have to be careful to ensure that we as Christians know that Jesus is not simply our Savior, but that He is our Lord. In other words, we could say it this way, the only people who will know Jesus as Savior in glory are those who recognize Him as Lord now. And so here is Jesus. Here is Jesus the King. Here is Jesus under His humiliation, suffering on behalf of sinners like us. Here is Jesus being criminalized for who He is, the King of glory. And ironically, below Him are the soldiers dividing up His clothes. This is the orchestration of God. The orchestration of God. Verse 23, And following the soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier and also a tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, and they said, therefore, to one another, Let us tear it, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This is the orchestration of God. History tells us that every Jew typically wore five pieces of clothing. They wore sandals, typically. They wore a turban, some kind of belt, an inner tunic, and an outer robe. That was the typical clothing for a Jew during the day. So when we think about that in light of what is happening, what we read here in verse 23 and 24, we can rightly surmise what happened. Right? Each one of the attending soldiers, this group of four soldiers who are there, they take a piece of probably the less valuable, if you will, pieces of clothing, one of the general pieces, and they come to the last piece, the tunic this tunic, deciding that because it's seamless, there's no sense in tearing it apart and all of us taking a worthless piece for ourselves, so let's gamble for it. But I think what is here for our attention is why they did this. Why they did this. They did it because sovereignly God was fulfilling what he had predetermined to happen. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, so that, this is the purpose, here's why, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That's God's orchestration. God is orchestrating the details of this event in order that his word, what he spoke years before, hundreds of years before, would be in fact, fulfilled just as he said it. In fact, that's exactly what this text says. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This is why they did it. They did it because the sovereign God was fulfilling his plan. Unwittingly, 
Unwittingly, the soldiers are fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22 and verse 18. Psalm 22, verse 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So isn't it interesting that even though these were cold-blooded killers, God is using them to accomplish His redemptive work. He's using them to fulfill His already spoken word. By the way, if you ever want to know what Jesus Christ was thinking, what was on his heart, those hours of darkness that he hung between heaven and earth on the cross, as the Father and he mysteriously in some way were estranged from each other. Psalm 22 is probably it. Psalm 22 is probably what was on his heart. The soldiers are fulfilling this reality because of the sovereign hand of God that is controlling it all. This is why the soldiers did it. And so we see the humiliation of Jesus Christ. He bore his own cross, the criminalization of Christ, that he was charged with being a king. The orchestration of God the Father, and then finally the compassion of Christ for his own. The compassion of Christ for his own. Verse 25 and following, notice what he says, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. We read these words, we read them rather quickly. We go on to the next very thing and we think in our mind, okay, that's just the next thing that happened. And it's unfathomable really for us to understand the pain that must have been in the hearts of these women but especially in the heart of Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. Back back in Luke chapter 2, she was told that the child had come into the world for the rising and the falling of many. Through him, it said, a sword would pierce her soul. She was loved by Jesus with a love that is not like any other love. And like any mother, I'm sure, as many of you women are here in this very room, Mary was bound to Jesus in a way that no human could ever have known but her. That motherly experience, however, ends right here at the cross with a sword of sorrow that plunges and pierces her very soul. Of course, by this time, Joseph is no longer on the scene. He probably has died. History doesn't tell us here in the Scriptures. Historical records by that time seem to tell us that maybe Joseph had been dead by this time. Jesus' brothers and sisters, of course, at this time, 
were yet to believe upon him. They hadn't yet become those who believed in Jesus as the Savior. And Mary needs someone to care for her as Jesus is now about to exit the scene. That someone happens to be the only disciple standing by her. And so the text tells us that when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Now that's John. That's John. That's the author of this very gospel. In this entire gospel, that's how John refers to himself. The disciple that is nearby. A nameless man. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he normally says. John was an interesting man in some ways. He was one of the two sons of thunder, as the nickname was for them, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. It was the nickname because they were very brash, very bold, very outgoing guys. He and his brother James were known for that. You remember, they were the two who went with their mother or had their mother go to Jesus and ask if each one of them could sit on the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. So their nickname was Sons of Thunder. But because of the grace of God in John's life, John simply saw himself as a nameless disciple whom Jesus loved. And John was overwhelmed by the fact of the love of Christ for him. Jesus looks down from the cross and sees his mother and these three other ladies. There was also there his mother's sister. The other gospel writers tell us her name was Salome. She was the wife of Zebedee, by the way, who is the father of the sons of thunder. Therefore, she's the mother of James and John. This is John and James' mother standing by Mary, who is her sister. So guess what that makes John to Jesus? His cousin. And then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. By the way, is another form of the word Alphaeus. Alphaeus is the father of the apostle James, sometimes known as James the Lesser. James the Lesser. And then there's also Mary Magdalene. She, of course, is the woman in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus had cast out eight demons from. She's the same woman who is in Simon's house when Jesus goes to Simon's house, and she is there weeping on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus rebukes Simon and says, not Simon Peter, Simon the Pharisee, and says, listen, you haven't done any of these things. He who loves much is forgiven much. That's Mary Magdalene. So all of these are there at the feet of Jesus as He's hanging on the cross. And Jesus focuses His earthly attention on His mother. And we get a picture of the compassion of Jesus here, even in His death. Mother, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. 
Woman's not a term of derogatory nature. It's just a sense of, of authority. Jesus had, had moved out from this place. He, he, that, yes, that's his earthly mother in the sense that she cared for him here on this earth. She was the womb from which he was born. And yet now he says, woman, from a sense of authority, behold your son. And to John, he says, son, behold your mother. Just a side note, by the way, I was thinking about this as I was reading this. I don't think there's any stronger proof than this very passage right here, that Mary was never meant to be honored as some divine being. She was never meant to be prayed to. She was never meant to be worshipped as some kind of friend that helps sinners be saved. That is a damning lie. Because, listen, just on a logical sense, if that were the case, then why would the Lord of glory need to care for His mother? If she were so equipped to help others, then why couldn't she be so inclined to help herself? There's no greater heresy in Christendom than the teaching of Mary worship. So here is Jesus expressing again his divine expression of love for his own. Right here on the cross. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. Because here's Jesus going through all of these horrifying hours. Agonizing in the garden, sweating drops of blood. Crying out if it's to the Father, if there's some other way that we can do this, some other way than to go through this horrible suffering under judgment. The agonies are incomprehensible to us. Yet through it all, here's Jesus who keeps pulling us out of our sorrow. Jesus keeps pulling us up from our own anxieties, out of our own fears. It shows us again and again this specific expression of love. This is the heart of Jesus, even on the cross. They would pour out care for his earthly mother in the same way he never forgets about us. Never forgets about us. Even on our worst day, Jesus' love never ends. He said that in John 17, right? He loved them to the end. No wonder Peter said, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. You see, humiliation, criminalization, orchestration, and loving compassion. This is the crucifixion. This is the mercy of God. I don't think there's any better thing to have on our minds as we enter the Thanksgiving season, is there? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for the reminder once again of what Christ has accomplished 
Lord, not just the physical feat of going through all of those things, but more so the spiritual reality by which he was estranged from you, that we who have been estranged from you since birth, because that's what sin does, it separates, that he would willingly be separated from you so that we might be brought back to you. The grand humiliation, being considered a criminal, all by the orchestration of your great will and plan so that we might know you through his love and we might know his love for every day, from now until eternity. What a joy it is. What a privilege. May that be in our hearts and our minds. Even now, Lord, as we go from this place, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.